Good evening. Good evening. Well, welcome to the Hoover Institution. Uh, it is my great pleasure to uh, welcome you to what is a really unique and entertaining conversation for us. Uh, usually we're talking about problems in the Straits of Taiwan, so uh, this will be, I think, quite a bit uh, more entertaining, and I really, myself, am excited about it. Uh, to celebrate the publication of a new book, The Siberia Job, and we're going to learn more about the true story behind it. Now, when a book is embossed with the words, based on a true story, the immediate question that every reader has is, what's fact and what's fiction? Today, we're going to get it from the source, what's fact and what's fiction. So, John, we're expecting to really know by the time that we leave. Uh, John Kleinheinz is a person of... Uh, great um, importance here at Hoover. He is, in fact, the chair of the Hoover Board of Overseers and a great supporter of the institution. He graduated from Stanford in 1984 with a degree in economics, and John began his career as an investment banker. He worked in Tokyo and New York and London, and then he moved to Texas in 1993, and he was a partner in an investment firm where he managed the Russia Value Fund, one of the earliest funds to invest in Russia and formed at the inception of the Russian stock market following the voucher privatization program in 1994. A lot more to come on this. John is the CEO today of Kleinhardt's Capital Partners, based in Fort Worth. His investment activity spans a variety of areas, including Japan, U.S. energy and technology markets, and private equity. Now he's in conversation with Hoover Senior Fellow Steve Kotkin. Steve is a foremost historian and especially a scholar on the Soviet Union. In fact, uh, Steve has written uh, the most highly regarded um, biographies of Joseph Stalin, and so he is well suited to this task. Now, to tee up Steve and John's conversation and to entice you to purchase your own copy of the book after this event, I want to read part of the foreword written by the author Josh Haven. Our last disclaimer as regards this book being fiction based on a true story, I don't want to be too specific about what's real and what isn't. Don't assume it's the crazier parts, the Caspian Sea fishing trip, for instance, or the club feud kidnapping that are made up. It was mostly the banal technical stuff that seemed most likely to get people into trouble. Those bits of borderline absurdism and many others really happened. Post-Soviet Russia was, he says, the wild, wild west of the East. Well, I can tell you that I spent a lot of time in post-Soviet Russia, and the wild, wild west never thought of being that wild. And so let me turn it to John and Steve. Well, welcome, everybody. It's nice to see so many familiar faces, including familiar faces from Russia in the 1990s. We have two people who joined the Hoover Institution relatively recently, uh, one of whom has published a book. And it's not me. <laughs> it's our chair of the Board of Overseers. So I'm going to guess that your annual performance review is going to be better than mine this yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to have to do better yeah. uh, next year. Yeah. Well, I'm um, not sure the P&L on this book is going to be, be any good. We'll wait. The jury's out on that, and we, we have the possibility to increase it right here as we sit. Um, so let's start from the beginning. 
how does uh, an upstanding family man from Texas uh, with a beautiful young wife uh, go end up in Russia in the 1990s, of all places? Um, that's an excellent question. And before I answer it, I just want to thank you, Stephen and Condi, for offering to host this event. I, I know there's been a, a dozens and hundreds of really impressive fellows and folks on this stage who've, who've written fabulous books and well-researched books. And I just want to assure you that, that um, this isn't one of them. This is fiction. <laughs> this, is, this is entertainment. This is a, a three-hour read. So it's, it's um, maybe the only fictional book that's ever been up here. But um, so, so how did, how did we get to Russia? How did I get to Russia? Um, I was running, I was a junior partner in an emerging market fund and I got calls from a number of people that said, you have to look at Russia. It's as interesting a market as we've ever seen. The Berlin Wall had fallen a few years earlier. The economy had, the command economy had spun um, out of control and had basically frozen. And by, by 1992, the, the place was just um, distraught. There were no, go to Moscow, there were no cars on the street. Um, There's no, no, no goods in the shops. Um, everybody walked around with their head held low. And, um, and then in, in 94, um, I went back and I, I saw a whole different picture. The, the, the green roots of the green shoots of the free market system had started. People were excited. Everybody had a deal. Investors were showing up from all around the world to, to look at the assets. Um, assets in Russia were trading at 1%. 2% of, of the value they'd be trading at if they were trading on a Western exchange or the U.S. And it was just a very exciting time, and it was a really unique opportunity to, to make money. Yeah, okay, I was there too. And there were some issues that would not have inspired a lot of confidence. Not that I had any money to invest, uh, but I'm not sure I would have had the confidence to think that this is a a good deal investment opportunity as opposed to, oh my God, what's going on here? This is a bit wild. So what gave you the confidence that the investment opportunity was greater than the risks, that the upside was, was greater than the risk? So good question. Um, so Marsha and I actually, my, my beautiful young wife, who's not quite as young anymore, but um, we were there in 92. She looks pretty young to she, me there, she, dude. She, 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 looks, she looks great. <laughs> Um, you know, we were there in 92 and we saw, we saw such a bleak picture and, and then I was there 18 months later and to see the same streets and the same places eight, in 18 months to be completely transformed, you, you, you just knew something was up. And remember Russia had vast pools of human capital, you know, they beat us into space in the space race, they gave us a good run in the arms race. My, my view was that Russia... Um, you know, they had, they had tons of oil. They were one of the largest owners of oil in the world. My view is that Russia just had a bad system. And if they, if they use the free market system and, and rule of law, that, that these investments that were trading at 1% to 2% of, of intrinsic value would, would close the gap with, with Western oil companies and Western telecommunications companies. So it wasn't, it wasn't a bet that Russia was going to become like the U.S. or Europe. It was just a bet that they would make progress toward that goal because if 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 remember if if a stock goes from being trading at a one or two percent of value to trading at a twenty percent of value you've made ten times your money and so 
that's what gave me the confidence. Yeah, 10 times your money, that would give me confidence too. It's just the murders and other things that would be complex. <laughs> but okay, let's, let's accept that, that you saw a lot of upside because the, valuation, the opening valuation was so low mm -hmm. that it couldn't really go any lower and there were a lot of possibilities inherent in the, yeah. the people. We were, we were betting know. on the system to develop. We weren't, that's okay. all we were doing. So um, we have this thing called vouchers, privatization through vouchers. Not everybody knows exactly what that might entail. So give us a small tutorial here about what the vouchers were and how the privatization in vouchers worked in that 1994 year where they um, privatized 11 time zones through a voucher system. Sure, sure. So they, they gave vouchers to every single man, woman, and child in Russia, and they were, they were freely tradable. Um, and what you could do with those vouchers is you could submit them into any, any voucher auction. And remember, at the time, Russia was auctioning off 80 to 90% of all of their corporations, all the, all the oil and gas companies, the fertilizer, steel, aluminum, tobacco, food companies, utilities, everything was, was, um, was put up for auction. And what happened is a lot of people um, took those vouchers and just sold them into the market. And so investors like, like our fund could just go out and, and buy them. And then we could, we could submit them into the, the, the various um, company voucher auctions that, that, that we mm. were interested in. Um, so, so it was a, it was chaotic. You know, they, they did it all at once. There's a lot of debate of whether they should have drawn it out and, and done it a different way. But, but for whatever reason, they decided 1994 was a year that they auctioned off everything. So they have all these state-owned companies. There are no private companies per se at scale in the Soviet period, and they're all state-owned. And so all the state-owned property, with some exceptions, is being sold. Mm -hmm. And so this is vast transfer of property, some of it nominal because it's not really worth much, but some of it has a lot of value in your, in your mind and other investors' minds. So Correct. they're transferring this to private markets, and they do it through these pieces of paper that every individual gets or several pieces of paper. And so you, people are sitting there with this thing called a voucher, and they're living in Yoshkar Ula, and they're living in Yaroslavl, and they're living in Magadan, and I mean, it's, it's very dispersed. It's a gigantic country, and, and individuals are holding these vouchers. And to extract any value from something like this, you need a lot of these pieces of paper, right? Mm -hmm. If you have two vouchers in a company that's sub worth substantial value, it's not going to... It's not going to move the needle for these people. Yeah. So how... Is it that you and your partners manage somehow to get your hands on these vouchers that are held in small numbers yeah. by massive numbers of individuals yeah, yeah. across this gigantic space which, whose communications and transportation yeah. and logistics are maybe not... That's, a, that's an excellent point and because a lot of people wouldn't even bother to find out how to submit the voucher into the auction for the company that they may have worked for. They just... So they would just go down. There's usually in most of these towns, there was a street corner where everybody knew you could sell your voucher. And there were those street corners in Moscow. 
And so what, what we would do is we would, before I would go over there, we would wire money to a bank that was run by a friend of mine who's in the book, a guy named Bernie Sucher. And we, the money would get there three or four days before us. And then he would turn it all into $100 bills. And his people, and sometimes our people, sometimes me, would go down to street corners with that money and just buy vouchers. And we'd take those vouchers and then... Um, right, so there you are with rolls and rolls of $100 bills on street corners in Russian places... I did that once, I did that once. ...whose names are hard to pronounce. I mean, it's just sort of like how capitalism works over here, right? <laughs> I, I go to the bank or I go to my friend and I get a suitcase of hundreds all rolled up with a rubber band. And then I go down to the corner there of University Avenue and, and Ramona, and I start asking people if they want to sell their vouchers. And I buy five million of them, eight million of them, and then I own Russia. That's kind of how it worked. I mean, um... <laughs> I'm not an investor, you're, you're making, so... You're, you're, I mean, the, your, your characterization is a fair characterization. It, it, uh, it, was, it was... Remember, though, the, the Russian government kept... A, ownership of a lot of the bigger companies. They, they kept some portion, 50%, 60%. So they were really just trying to get the market moving. They were trying to create a stock market with these vouchers. They weren't, the real, the real wealth transfer happened in the loans for shares scheme that happened post 1998 after Putin got in. Right. And that's, that's where the real wealth was transferred away from the So state. not a voucher privatization, but yeah, the voucher privatization started, just sort of started the, the market going. That's how I'd characterize it. Right. Okay. Um, I don't know if you can reveal this, but what was your best investment in Russia? Where'd you do your biggest killing? So uh, I, I, that's a that's poor a choice of words. That's, that's figurative. <laughs> we're not accusing you of being involved in activities okay. Okay. that you. your partners were involved in. Thank you for. I'm <laughs> sorry that 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 the other people were involved in the the competitors, not your partners. Okay. So w w what was your best deal? Your best investment so, at the time. So the, the the investment I thought that worked out the best for us was a company called Luke Oil, and and I was friends with a gentleman by the name of Robert Strauss, who was the U.S. ambassador to to Russia, and he was a he was a, a partner at Aiken Gump, and I was very close to Bob. He was, he gave me a lot of advice, told me helped us get out of some trouble we had in Russia a couple of times. And he, t Luke Oil was a customer of Aiken Gump, uh, of their law firm, and, and he told me that Luke Oil wanted to become a major international oil company, just like Exxon. And so when, when, you're, when, when all these companies are available and you don't know what to look for and you hear something like that from somebody you respect, you just, that company automatically went to the top of my list. And we, we bought the stock um, with the vouchers at a $300 million valuation. This is a company that, that at the time did almost 2 million barrels of oil of production a day, which many of you might not, that might not mean much to many of you, but that's about the size of Exxon, so much Exxon produces. So um, $300 million, it's, I think that when, when the stock market stopped trading, when Russia invaded the Ukraine, it had a $60 billion market cap. So it's 200, 200 times. So you bought the equivalent of Exxon for $300 million? That's a small Standing part. on those street corners. <laughs> this guy is a lot smarter than I thought. No, yeah. <laughs> let's just uh, let's just I admit that I, right but now. I saw, I, you know, it's like many things. If I had held on to it, it would have been great. I sold it after, you know, so, way too soon. You're still alive to talk about it. Yes. So selling sometimes can have 
advantages beyond the monetary ones. <laughs> All right. So um, we're, we're now heavily invested in Russia. Mm -hmm. We're making serious money because things are undervalued, and you and your partners are perceiving value, and, and that value is coming into being over the course of the 90s. And you manage the logistics of mastering this voucher privatization. So here we are 30 years later, and now we have a book. Mm -hmm. So where did the book come from? Uh, what motivated you to do the book? And uh, why now do we have the book since these are events from 30 years ago? Good. Excellent question. So I have always wanted to write this book. Um, it's, it's really, I, other than what I was doing in Russia, everything in my life has been relatively boring and routine. But, but it's the one thing I constantly go back to and think, wow, I can't believe that that really happened. And, and so I've, it's, it's, you know, everybody has a book in them. Um, just about two, a little over two years ago, I was sitting in front of my Bloomberg machine. And I saw a title go across the thing that, that my partner in the book, Peter Kelmer, had been killed in a helicopter ski accident. Mm. And, um, and I, it, it sort of, you know, when your friends die, um, you know, and Peter and I weren't close. We, we stayed close for a few years after I left Russia. But, but, you know, when people like that who are important in your life die, it changes you a little bit. And I said, okay, I'm going to write that book. So, you know, I do what, you know, when I don't know how to do something, the first thing I do is I go call somebody and I call somebody who's done it. And, and I don't know if, if Tom Jenks or Carol are here um, back there. Oh, there they are there. So I called, I called my good friends, Tom and Carol, Tom's a, ran a publishing company. And I said, I've got this story, Tom, how do I do it? And, and he put me in touch with a great literary agent in New York named Warren Frazier. And mm. Warren helped me um, look for authors to help write it. Because, um, you know, writing, doing creative writing is not in my, my wheelhouse. It's not my skill set. So Warren helped me find a great young author. And then we, we uh, a guy named Josh Gelertner. And Josh and I started interviewing people who had been involved with this project. And, and we, we called around, and to our surprise, literally everybody we talked to about it said, yeah, I want to help. And so we, we set up shop in the Bahamas and brought people in and did interviews and, and um, came up with this, with this somewhat true story. My, my writing process is different. <laughs> I'll just say that. I've never even been to the Bahamas. Yeah. But I'm thinking what kind of book maybe could come out of a trip like that. I'll, I'll be talking to the director after this about that. <laughs> OK. So all right, so, so we launched the project. Uh, uh, Josh Galertner um, uh, helps you tell the story. I mean, it's your story. You relate the story. It's captured. It's transmitted. Uh, why did we choose fiction as opposed to nonfiction, or fiction that's close to reality but is not nonfiction all the same? Yeah, good question. I mean, it happened so long ago; it, it was just difficult to remember the the specifics and the, the you know the sequencing and who was involved and um, and then the when you really look at what we did um, going out, in, you know. We can talk a little bit about the gas prom auction because that's what the story's about. Mm. Um, it, 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 I don't think it would have been as interesting if it was told um, as a nonfiction work. I just I, I think it would have bogged down in the details. 
and Josh, you know, every, almost everything in the book is true. What's what's not true is how everything fits together. And Josh just did a very good and creative job taking all these different anecdotes and all these stories that he heard from the people we interviewed, and he 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 kept, he was true to the storyline, but the, the the way everything fit together was made up and made up in a way that makes it a very readable book. So you're in the book mm-hmm. and the characterization of you struck me as close to who you are and what you did. Yeah. Uh, your friend, uh, Peter Kellner, the Czech businessman who did the voucher privatization in Czech Republic before the, the Russian one. He's in the book and there are a bunch of characters that seem to be based on Bernie Sutcher or Bob Strauss, that would have been a good person for me to know as yeah. well. Um, and, and so you, you have a cast of characters that's based on, all based on real people who, who did the, the story. Mm-hmm. As, what about some of the other characters? There's this endearing prostitute character. Um, I'm sorry, it's Russia in the 90s. I don't mean to cast aspersions, but there's this very endearing prostitute character who ends up being the wife yeah. of uh, your partner. What about stuff like that? So, so first of all, with the characters, um, <laughs> some of them are compilations. I mean, my character, okay. my, my character is not entirely me. It's, I had a, a partner in Texas, and, and I had a friend at Merrill Lynch who, who was involved. And so, but it was mostly me. The Peter character is actually two different Peters, and one of them's, one of them's still alive, and one of them participated. Um, one, you know, both Peters were close friends, um, but, but there were two people. Anna, the wife of Peter, that's a completely, that's the one character in the book that's completely fictional. And uh, we, I identified with her. We, <laughs> <laughs> she's a great character, but she's completely I, fictional. I thought I could meet her now that I've, uh, yeah, but, yeah. all right. Yeah. You need okay. that. You need you need a, a a female character to connect and um. not just in books. <laughs> okay, all right. So so we got this incredible story. It reads yeah. in one sitting. Yeah, uh, I know because that's how I read it in a single sitting. Um, and it's it's gripping. It's true to the the '90s as experienced. Some things happen that that uh, seem improbable, mm-hmm. but those are the things that are true. Mm-hmm. And the stuff that's less probable, those are the things that you're, you guys made up. That's right. But let's get a little taste okay. of it, if, if you wouldn't mind. Okay. Uh, let's okay. have a reading so, of, of a passage. Go so ahead gonna, and set it up. I'm going to read um, a chapter, a whole chapter, but it's a short chapter, um, chapter 8. And just to set it up, we, we, we'd submitted a lot of vouchers in various voucher auctions, and we were starting to get results and remember with the vouchers the the you want it's there's a game theory here you want other people not to submit vouchers so the more vouchers that are submitted the higher price everybody gets if few people submit you do really well and 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 you can get a big percentage of the company with fewer vouchers so we just learned that we had gotten a a big percentage of a company called kursk tobacco and we were um we we were going in to get our shares placed on the company register, which is something that you need to do after the voucher auctions in these smaller companies. Um, The boardroom of Cursed Tobacco looked like every other nice office John had seen so far in Russia, wood veneer and Soviet deco wall clock. It was in a nice office building not far from the Kremlin. 
John and Peter were sitting on one side of a long table. On the other side was a solemn-looking, slightly overweight Russian man. Gentlemen, he said in English, I understand you wish to exert some control over the operations of the company. Yes, said Peter. That is, of course, you're right as majority shareholders. We weren't majority shareholders. Or at least it will be your right as majority shareholders once you sign our investiture documents. But the minority shareholders wish to make something clear to you before you do. Who are the minority shareholders, said Peter. They wish to remain anonymous, said the man. But you may think of them as bratya. Bratya, said John. Literally, it means brothers, said Peter, who was looking slightly uncomfortable. What does it mean, not literally, said John. It means mafia, said Peter. John nodded, and for a moment, one said, no one said anything. Um, are you trying to keep us from registering our shares in the company, said John, finally. No, said the man. In fact, we can see many advantages to your being a majority shareholder of Kursk. But they wish first for you to understand the responsibilities that will go with your ownership, which are, said John after a pause, well, Kursk is an unusual business model. You will be legally liable for it. Not that there is any cause for concern. What is the business model, said Peter? It's generally understood that Kursk manufactures and distributes cigarettes. He paused, and after a moment, Peter said, okay. But it does not only manufacture Kursk cigarettes. I don't follow, said John. Kursk also manufactures Marlboros, Camels, Lucky Strikes, Parliament, Mall, Newport, Winston. Kursk manufacturers may be one in three of the Western cigarettes sold in Eastern Russia and Central Asia. You make counterfeit cigarettes, said John. And now you do too, said the Kursk man. <laughs> Jesus, said John. Are you saying that's how you generate your revenue, fake name brand cigarettes? No, said the Kursk man, not at all. Kursk is a legitimately a very profitable business and illegitimately a much, much more profitable business. <laughs> but here's the issue. We do not intend to modify our business plan. With Westerners, whether they're Czech, if that counts too, nominally running the business, your partners believe it could help to expand these operations to new markets. Mutually beneficial. Everyone earns, earns you see. But as I said, you will be liable to Russian courts if you do not wish to participate in this business model, your partners will then buy you out. The choice of your, is yours. John and Peter looked at each other. Each saw the other was at a loss. Peter turned back to the Kursk man. Buy us out for how much? The Kursk man produced a billfold from which he removed a bank check. He slid it across the table. Peter picked it up. $1,000. <laughs> yes, said the Kursk man. As I say, your new partners feel either choice will be satisfactory to them, but assuming you do not wish to remain their partners, they do not wish to overpay. Uh-huh, said John. And if we offer to sell to a third party? As a lawyer for Kursk, I can tell you that we will handle these matters of stock strictly in accordance with Russian law. Stock is not publicly negotiable, so if you attempt to sell it to a third party, it would simply remand to the company. Uh-huh, said John. So what shall I say, gentlemen, said the cursed man, holding up his hands, welcome or farewell. John and Peter looked at each other, then John turned back to the cursed man. Obviously, we're going to need a little time to think about this. Of course, said the cursed man, take 24 hours.
Yeah, so that was my impression of privatization in the 90s. <laughs> and just to let you know, every chapter is like that in the book. There are what we would call ethical dilemmas that arise here in addition to uh, calculations that normal investors would have to make. Yeah. So, so, so you're, you're an owner of substantial assets in Russia you know, along with partners who are your co-investors. Um, do you get out? Do you stay in? Do you transition? What happens? Uh, so 94, 95, then what's next after that? So, so we had an interesting dilemma. Our, our global emerging markets fund put, put 15 to 20% of its money into the Russian voucher auctions. And in six months, we, we made 8, 10, 12 times our money on, on almost everything. Normal. It's a normal, normal for six, six months, months return. So, we, so all of a sudden, our global emerging <laughs> markets fund um, um, was, was 80% invested in Russia. And so low risk profile, low risk profile. <laughs> and, and, our, and a lot of our investors were saying, gosh, that's great. You know, the returns were, were outstanding. Um, but, but they didn't want to, a lot of people didn't want to have that much money invest in Russia. So what we did is we set up the Russia value fund and we took 80% of our holdings and put it in the Russia value fund and went out and raised money from people who wanted to get into Russia. Okay. So we turned this little trade into a whole new business. That became, you know, a very a very big part of the um, a big part of the company that that I was a partner in, and and raised a bunch of money for, because we had custody of these stocks and we had we knew what to own and we had a great portfolio and and people were trying to get into Russia in late nineteen ninety four and ninety five, early ninety five, and so we we had we had exactly the product to sell to them and. The, the product became real big and successful, and my my I was the twenty five I was a junior partner in the company, and I had a seventy five percent partner, and he decided he wanted to run the Russia business, and it, there wasn't enough room in there, and, and so I went and, and founded my own company in nineteen ninety six. So I I pretty much was out of Russia by ninety six and ninety seven, and missed the big financial collapse that happened in ninety eight. God, what a shame. <laughs> you got out before the whole thing blew up. Uh, you know, I'd rather be lucky than smart. I'm Steve. so sorry for you. Right? Everyone else had uh, new wallpaper for their offices in Wall Street, known as Russian bonds. God, it was a it was a terrible trade. That you know, long term <laughs> capital management got put out of business, and my my former partner was put out of business. It was it was it was a brutal cash ATM machines in Moscow didn't work. It was yeah. tough time. Yeah, I was there. Okay, so uh, uh, let's ask the question that's on everybody's mind, Bill Browder. Mm -hmm. uh, Bill is a well-known investor in Russia in the 90s. Things didn't turn out so well for Bill. He had, he's, let's just say he had many more issues than you had as an investor in Russia. How does your story and your experience compare to what happened to Bill Browder, and of course, Bill has a book also, The Red Notice, which mm -hmm. is a remarkable read, just yep. like yours is. Yep. Give us a little bit of insight into how you and Bill align or don't align. So, so Bill is a very close friend of mine. Bill and I were friends in London. We were both bankers in London before the Berlin Wall, wall fell down, um, and and then we were both there in Russia. As I said, there were hundreds of people who were showing up in Russia and. 94 and Bill was one of them and Bill and I did business together. He was at Solomon Brothers um, He's he's a great guy um, Bill Bill 
made a, you know, when he set up his fund, it was all Russia. When I set up my fund, it was global macro. So the big difference is Bill committed to Russia and I, I did not commit to Russia. So that, that, that was the, the, the main difference. And then, and then Bill, um, you know, Bill stirred things up. Bill pointed out things that were being done by companies like Gazprom and that, that the management didn't want people to know about. And he, he would call attention and he'd write these long research reports and he, he really upset people. And, and finally, they, they, they made a number of people mad enough where they wouldn't let him into the country. He was, at the time, he was the largest foreign investor in Russia with five or six billion dollars. And they literally showed up at the airport in Moscow and they wouldn't let him in. And then they then they arrested you know his his tax accountant and who, who later died in prison is you know his book is 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 a is a wonderfully written book it's compelling it's nonfiction um, um, it's tragic um, and it's it's a great book I think I think Bill told me he sold three million copies so um, you know I have I have a great deal of respect for Bill I just I didn't commit my life to Russia the way Bill did thankfully well, right he had some family ties. That you didn't have. That's right. Um, his dad and, and everything else. But but so not everybody, some people made money in the 90s and uh, some people got out with their money and then other people made money and didn't get out and we're not in the 90s anymore. So give us a little bit of insight into Russia since the time that you were an investor and whether it's gone in a direction that maybe you sensed a little bit, or maybe it surprised you, or maybe the other people who didn't get out didn't know the direction Russia was going, and they were surprised, because people wouldn't think today that Russia was an investment opportunity. Yeah, I think I think what really surprised me about Russia, you know, Putin was prime minister in 1998, and then he took over for Boris Yeltsin right at the end of '99. And in the the first couple of years, Putin was was president. I, I thought he was an absolute boy scout. He was a big proponent of of reform. He, he westernized financial markets, um, free markets. He was he was doing all the right things. He was the first world leader at the site of nine eleven with George W. Bush. Um, and the stock market responded. I mean, the stock market went up twenty times from when Putin took over as president to to you know mid. You know, two thousand four, two thousand five, something happened in there, and you know, I'm not sure what exactly it was. You know, NATO enlargement or um, oil going to one hundred twenty a barrel, or you know, Russia getting back on its feet. But the security apparatus, the KGB, and all those people started to insinuate themselves into all these companies, and and it just it, it, the system just got dirtier and dirtier, and and less and less investable um, throughout the the two thousand. 2006, 2008. Um, and finally, Western investors just, you know, really began to ignore it. And, and they, and Russia was hit very badly in the great, great financial crisis, probably the worst hit market during that, that period. Is there a kind of alumni network of people who experienced Russia in the 90s or informal uh, social network of people who uh, maybe don't publish books about it, but nonetheless share their war stories and you were there together, and you talk about what you achieved and what went wrong. Or yeah, it's an informal group, and it's a big group. I mean, um, I don't know if is Mike McFall here t- today. Who's, I thought Mike was going to come. Mike Mike knows a lot of folks who who were are in that group. Um, I would say I'd say there's a there's a 
collective sense of disappointment in that group. Russia was off to such a good start in the mid-90s, and they, they were behaving, <coughs> acting by the rules. They understood how the stock markets work. They were buying stocks. They were listening to their financial advisors. And then, and then the wheels kind of came off in 98 and, and you know, when, when the, the banking crisis hit. And, um, and, and after that, the Russians reverted to their old ways, their, you know, their corrupt ways, um, bribing, corruption, you know, threatening force, threatening violence because their court systems don't work. And that's how you resolve business disputes is mm-hmm. by threatening violence. So, you know, but it's, it's, it's disappointing that Russia didn't follow that initial path that, that looked so good. You know, I wrote this essay when I was younger called Trash Canistan. And it was not an ethnic term. It was a political term about state capture, corrupt elites, uh, absence of a judiciary, absence of a civil service. And it was about how the institutions weren't there, and so it was an individually determined, individually run system, or patronage, group run system. And it wouldn't end well. And I was at a conference, uh, we won't name the, the person who ran it, but resembles Michael Milken, uh, down in L.A., and I was on a stage like this with, uh, not with you, but with the Browder types and Boris Berezovsky and the rest of them. And I uh, described this Trashkanistan problem. They were invested in Russia. Uh, Milken was at the head table. Everyone who he had created through junk bonds was right in front of him. So Rupert Murdoch was sitting there and many other really successful people in in. It was a ballroom in Beverly Hills, three times the size of this. And, and uh, after I gave the presentation about Trashkanistan, this is not going to end well, and we have some institutional issues here, they came up to me at the end and they said, oh my God, you're a specialist on emerging markets. Can we hire you? And I thought, but wait a minute, this is Trashkanistan. And they said, no, 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 this is emerging markets. So I thought, okay, I'll become an expert on emerging markets. And from that day, I had a consulting business. And my consulting business was to say, I'd be cautious about this person. I think this person has a lot of contract murders on his rap sheet. And and they would say, yeah, but look at the valuations. (laughs) You know, this thing is pumping 2 million barrels, and it's worth nothing on the stock exchange. And even if it only... Anyway, the, 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 yeah. the logic that you would understand well. And it did, it, despite some setbacks, we had the Yukos uh, stuff, as you know, with Mikhail Hartakovsky, who was here not long ago at Stanford, where uh, his company was expropriated. He had privatized it in the fashion that you had described, the loans for shares. And yeah, by the was, way, he, he, we had a chocolate company. He took our shares in the chocolate company. Oh, yeah. yeah. I remember well, we're, that we're, well. We're that happy. was a good company. Yeah. And that wasn't the only chocolate that he put his hands in, I got to <laughs> say. But yeah, okay, so um, there was a bit of a disconnect in some ways between the investor class, which yeah. saw the numbers and saw the opportunity, which was real. I mean, obviously it was real. You're the board chair of the over overseers yeah. right now. Yeah. It was more than real. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, there were... There were indications that there was this disconnect on the institutional, legal, political side. 
right? And, and, and others besides me were witnesses to that. I'm looking over at our director who had a front row seat uh, through all of this and met the principals, Condi Rice, former, former National Security Advisor and Secretary of State. So, but, but now if we project forward, right, and now everything that's happened, mm -hmm. and Russia is where it is, and we have this criminal aggression against Ukraine, and we have the essentially destruction of Russia's business reputation, not just the decline of it, not just the, uh, let's say, um, uh, scandalizing of it here and there, but really the self-destruction of it. Mm -hmm. So do you see some possible way forward, some elements in Russia that you previously saw that we might focus on uh, for a different Russia or a Russia that more resembled the hopeful Russia that you saw in the 90s? That's a, that's a tough question. It's not easy to see that because what, what you need in a place like Russia is you need most of the people to obey the law and to do things the right way and to not use bribes and to not use threats of physical violence. And if you have 15 or 20 percent of the, the business people that are behaving that way, then, then the rest of the business people are incentivized to, to behave that way. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, you, you need you need the you need the courts, you need the rule of law, and it's just hard for me to to see a Russia that that where everybody behaves again. Um, but it you know it's you know and this and this is where you and I would probably disagree is is I think there will be an opportunity to buy the Russian stock market again at you know five to ten percent of what it's worth because they could make progress, yeah. and and when you make progress. You don't have to get to 100%. You, you can just make some progress and the stock market will go up. So mm -hmm. there may be an opportunity to invest in Russian stocks again. But not okay. for you. Not for you. Uh, if I had money to invest, which is another conversation I'm going to talk to our director about, <laughs> uh, there were some other opportunities that I see where the risk profile is different in terms of physical risk. That's not in terms of financial risk, because I'm not the kind of analyst that you are that can see that. Anyway, okay, on the note that there may be opportunities to invest in Russia again in the future, I think that's an important point. Uh, we'll now open it up to our audience. Many of you were there. Some of you were investors there. Uh, please ask a question related to the book and the experience of Russia in the 90s. Uh, to our board chair, and, John Klein. And please wait for a microphone before you ask the question. Thank you for being a better moderator than I am. <laughs> no surprise there. By the way, I'm honorary Klein Heinz. He's a real Klein Heinz, but I'm the Klein Heinz Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Sure. So uh, we, have, we have two Klein Heinzes, or maybe one and a half Klein Heinzes on the stage right now. But who's going to have the uh, courage for the first question so that I don't have to call on somebody? We might actually have some Stanford students in the audience. And I was struck by your opportunity came from who you know knew as much or more than what you knew. And, and if I was to give advice to students today beyond your basic skills as an investment banker, how much importance do you place on the relationships you established that enabled you to make those huge wins in Russia. You know, that, that's an excellent observation because what allowed us to do so well is that I showed up on the ground in Moscow with a notebook full of 
people that could be trusted, that, that had already checked out, that had, people had already given me their names. And so I didn't have to just use the, the, the people that were there. I, I, I immediately had trusted people on the ground. And so those relationships are absolutely vital. Do you maintain some of those relationships to this day, or, or? yeah, yeah? I mean, I was. Um, I don't. They're not real. They're not real active from a business standpoint, but they're they're friendly relationships, and I spend time with these people. Okay. All right. Who's next? Thank you so much for your um, observations and the book discussion. I think it's awesome. Um, so I have two questions. The first question is, um, who? will come after Putin. That's the first question. That's yours, by the and way. And the second question is, so I know, um, I know that you've spoken before about the Golden Bridge. So how do you, what do you see as the Golden Bridge? That's me? Yeah. But Please. you wrote the book. Yeah, but you're going to answer that question. Um, Russia's in decline and has been in decline for some time. Uh, Russia's capabilities don't match its aspirations. The Soviet Union overreached. It imploded as a result, partly because we had the correct policy, which was to stand up to them in a Cold War, not to engage them in a hot war, but to stand up to them in a Cold War and to ensure that we kept pressure on that system. That was a bipartisan policy across uh, both Democratic and Republican administrations, although Reagan gave a significant boost, I would argue, to that policy. And so Russia imploded. It, w it couldn't match us. It wanted to match us, and it couldn't. That was what uh, Ronald Reagan as president and George Shultz as secretary of state and many other people in that administration understood. And then the collapse continued after 1991. It wasn't like the Soviet collapse ended and then something called reform and transition began immediately the next day. Institutionally, uh, January 1st, 1992, when Boris Yeltsin woke up as the president of independent Russia, he had 250,000 people in the KGB and he had 7,000 judges. And so that was the stuff to build a new Russia and it was even weaker and weaker and weaker and got weaker. Uh, Putin came along and did arrest the decline. There was a, a, a strengthening of the Russian state, coherence introduced, privatization of land, which was a critical aspect, macroeconomic stability, getting inflation under control, and being a pro-business first term uh, for Putin, which meant that it, Russian entrepreneurs could get rewards for their hard work and, and their imagination. Uh, that process hit a wall. Part of it was the security stuff where Putin came from, and part of it was that the gap from Russia to richer Western countries didn't close. It kept getting bigger. And this resentment at the gap between Russians' aspirations and capabilities uh, Russia's uh, standing vis-a-vis -vis the West, this resentment, roiling resentment, uh, produced a kind of revanche in the system to try to close that gap or at least manage that gap. And we got the, the Putin that we know today. But it's only gotten weaker. 
in trying to strengthen Russia again, in trying to make Russia able to match Western power, American power, he's only further weakened it. Everything he's done has made his strategic situation worse. And so Russia is in potentially terminal decline as a great power on the earth. And so it's hard to say what comes after him. Uh, he may have very good doctors. Uh, you can survive a lost war even if uh, you're unpopular as long as you suppress all political alternatives. He could fall. There could be circumstances that we don't see now. You know, all coups are invisible or failures until they succeed. Kind of comes out of nowhere. So we can't preclude it, but we have to be ready for him staying a long time and furthering this Russian weakness and Russian decline. You have to see his actions, including the criminal aggression against Ukraine, as deriving from weakness, not from strength. And that's a secular trend. Ukraine is paying the price in a really big way right here as we speak. Uh, Russia is also paying the price of this misrule and this attempt, this resentment at the weakness and attempt to overcome the weakness. We could well find ourselves in a situation where managing an angry, resentful, and yet still capable Russia is a global problem of very significant um, order. And we could well find ourselves, ironically, asking the Chinese to help us manage this Russian problem. A lot of our uh, government officials have been working hard to break Russia off from China to use Russia as an instrument to manage China, because China is seen as the, the, the more difficult task, the peer competitor. Uh, China has a stake in the international system. It, it is also seeking to change the international system more to its favor, but it has a stake in a way that Russia doesn't have a stake. And when you don't have a stake and you're weak and angry, but you have capabilities like blowing up a dam, God forbid blowing up a nuclear power plant, poisoning water supplies, cutting undersea cables, and I could go on with the kind of spoliation that could happen because you got nothing to lose. You're out. You're going down. All right, what was Gorbachev's great achievement? He allowed the thing to go down and didn't take the rest of the world down with it. We're going to need to manage this in a way where we don't have Gorbachev there. We got somebody else there. And it could be that he's replaced and we get a a person who is, wants to re-engage and re-enter and get a stake in the international order and transform Russian domestic institutions and not threaten its neighbors. and That could happen. It can't be precluded. We're not on that pathway right now, but it, it could surprise us. But we could find ourselves in a situation where we're imploring the Chinese to get the Russians to stop doing some of the nasty things they're doing including this Ukraine situation. So it's very troubling, the path that Russia is on. Very troubling. Now let's remember that the U.S. in the 1940s, after World War II, provided opportunity domestically to its entire population. There was a middle-class economic boom between the end of World War II and the 
1970s. Our family was a beneficiary. My father worked in an embroidery factory and bought a house in that time period. We provided opportunity to our allies, not just through the Marshall Plan. And we provided opportunity to our enemies, to Japan and Germany. It was an extraordinary act that we pulled off. The, the, the opportunity domestically and globally, including to those that we had just fought a war with. That remarkable history needs to be remembered now as we go forward. And we need to manage in a way that we managed before. It may be different. Uh, there may be ways in which Russia is not recuperable the way Germany and Japan were. They defeated in existential wars and willing to accept American leadership and occupation and transformation. It's not going to be identical. But we have a big problem here to manage. And Putin is only part of that problem. It could get better and it could actually get worse without him. Or it could get worse with him. It could become a kind of North Korea at really massive scale, uh, which is worrisome. And so uh, managing the relationship with China, which is very important for everything and which is not part of the book and we're not talking about. Uh, the, that piece will have a Russia component, for better or for worse. So I make no predictions about the future. If I could predict the future, I would be in that seat, and, and I'd be an investor, and John would be in this seat, yeah. and he'd be the half Kleinheits, and I'd be the full Kleinheits. Yeah. Thanks, thanks, Steve. That's exactly how I would answer that question. Too. <laughs> let's, uh, let's see who, we, who else we got. We got one in the front row here on, on, your, on the right side, our left. So in every great uh, bit of fiction, uh, you have to, as they say, kill your darlings, right? So if that's 100,000 words or so, there had to be some extension of it that you wish that you could have put in the book, but it had to be chopped. So I'm really curious as to what was the most compelling story that you just desperately wanted to tell, but the editor was like, not today. The director's cut. The director's he wants to right. see. He hasn't even read the book so, yet, so, so, and, he, and he wants so, the director's so cut. So there, there is, there actually is a good story, a great story. So there, there was just a lot of, we, there was a lot of research, a lot of talking, a lot of stories that came up, and there's this great story about the refuseniks. And the refuseniks are these group of Russian Jews who wanted to emigrate, to, usually to Israel, and the Russians wouldn't let them out um, because they they held positions of power, or they were, did something important. A lot of times it's because they were very wealthy. And they wanted to make sure they left with, with nothing on their themselves. So they would be followed around for long periods. And, um, and any, anyway, one of these refuseniks finally got out. Um, the KGB guy that was guarding him walked him to the airport. He was absolutely sure he was leaving with nothing. He gets to Israel. A couple years later, the wall falls down. He's back in Moscow. And he bumps into the KGB guy, and, and, and this refusenik is obviously very wealthy and, and some, somehow managed to get the money out. And, and the KGB guy said, how did you do it? And he said, he said um, the night before I left Moscow, I, invited, I had a big party in my, my large apartment and, and invited five people from the U.S. Embassy. And I took them into my, my office that had a big wood-burning fireplace. And I had the whole office was full of, of $100 bills that I had accumulated. And I showed them all the $100 bills. And they looked at the serial numbers and examined them all. And then I burned all, we burned all the $100 bills. And apparently, there's a regulation in US Treasury code where if you destroy currency and you can 
prove at, with affidavits from U.S. officials that it's been destroyed, they will reimburse you. So he got on, he got off the plane in Israel, went to Washington D.C., and got all of his money back. <laughs> yeah, you know why didn't I think of that? <laughs> I'm half Jewish. Maybe I I needed to be a hundred percent in order to think that that clearly. I'm sorry that's not in the book, but thank you for asking that question. But we're going to have a book signing. Uh, that John has graciously uh, agreed to sign books that are for sale just outside after. So we'll take one more question, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up and head for the book signing. Yeah, I was curious. You said Putin was a Boy Scout when he first took over. Do you think he really was, and he's changed? And if so, what changed him? Or do you think he's always been the Putin that we know today? Well, I can only answer the first part of that question, um, and, and he really was a Boy Scout. When he got in there, he, he was handed a whole, he had, the, the Russian markets were in total disarray, the banks were insolvent, um, he was handed a whole list of problems, and, he, and he, he approached them in a very free market, reformist style, um, and, and as I said, he was the first global leader at the 9-11 with George W. Bush after the attack. Um, um, I, I don't, again, I don't know whether he was a bad guy who was pretending to be good or, or not. And, fr and frankly, I think, you know, this is going to be a question for historians for the next hundred years to what, why Putin went so bad. And that, I'll turn it over to the half Kleinheims. Uh, Joe Stalin was a choir boy. He went to church every day. Uh, he did, uh, you know, acts of charity and good deeds and wrote poetry, pretty good poetry in his native Georgian language. Uh, he then went on to murder 18 to 20 million people. And so people can surprise you. Let's just put it at that. Um, I, I don't have the, the same insight into President Putin that our director has, who could answer the question much better than anybody in this room about what he was like and, and what changed him and why. Uh, but people have different dimensions in them, and some of them recede and others rise to the fore. There's stuff in there. It's kind of all in there, but other things bring it out or suppress certain types of behavior and values. Uh, but, but you can't blame this on us. We didn't do this to him. He did this. He's doing it to Ukraine. He's doing it to the Russian people, and we have to remember that. Nobody has done more damage to Russia and to Russian interests in our lifetimes than Vladimir Putin has done. Okay, it's time to buy some books. Let's give it up for John Kleinheim. <laughs> thank, thank you very much. That was really appreciated.